Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Many Gifts, One Spirit, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for January 16th, 2022, the second Sunday after the Epiphany. I love Pixar movies. When my children were younger, we watched them often, and to this day, The Incredibles is one of my favorites. Set in a fictitious version of the 1960s, the animated movie follows the lives of a superhero family, Mr. Incredible, Elastigirl, and their three children, who are forced to hide their superpowers in accordance with the government mandate and live quiet, ordinary lives in suburban America. In one of the film's telling scenes, the middle child in the family, a little boy named Dash, bemoans the fact that he has to hide his superpower, lightning speed, when he goes to school. I thought our powers made us special, he complains to his mother. Everyone is special, his mom replies, hoping to placate him. But Dash rolls his eyes at her democratization of specialness. That's just another way of saying no one is, he mutters. I remember Dash's frustration this week as I reflected on our reading from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In it, Paul responds to an embattled congregation whose thorny questions echo Dash's. What does it mean to be special to God? Who counts as gifted and why? Aren't some spiritual gifts and abilities more remarkable than others? How can everyone be special at the same time? As a whole, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth is an impassioned plea for unity. The church is fraying at the seams, unable to handle, much less celebrate, its rich diversity. In the section of the letter our lectionary offers us this week, Paul confronts one of the problems dividing the community, the problem of spiritual elitism, which is to say, the problem of specialness. Paul notices that the church assumes an implicit hierarchy when it comes to gifts. Congregants with flashier, louder, more ecstatic abilities, i.e. the ability to speak in tongues, consider themselves superior to those whose gifts are quieter, less visible, or more mundane. These self-described spiritual superheroes believe that their gifts are a sign of God's special favor, a sign that they deserve more authority, status, and power in the church than those who don't speak in tongues, perform miracles, or utter prophecies. At first glance, this toxic first-century mess in Corinth might seem irrelevant to us. After all, most of us don't spend our Sunday mornings fighting over the gift of tongues. But consider for a moment our own fraught relationship with giftedness. Don't we have hierarchies of our own when it comes to the talents and abilities we admire most? In what ways do we equate giftedness with divine favor or blessing? Don't we secretly believe that some Christians, the ones who preach or pray eloquent prayers or have the strongest leadership skills or exhibit the most charisma, have a more direct line to God than the people who wipe down pews, run church nurseries, or order office supplies? Who in your church receives all the invitations and nominations? Whose gifts lie buried, unnoticed, and uncultivated? The fact is, we live in cultures and communities that encourage us to envy, worship, or become religious superheroes. We learn early on to hoard, compete, compare, and judge. We learn to think of giftedness as something we deserve, something we inherit at birth or earn by sheer effort. In many of our contemporary contexts, the end goal of giftedness is privilege, status, and adoration. To be gifted is to be set apart, elevated far above the ordinary. Our gifts are for our own edification, pleasure, gain, and reward. But this way of thinking about spiritual gifts has no place in Christianity. 
As our lectionary reading makes clear, spiritual superiority is, to put it bluntly, not a thing. In the case of the Corinthian church, Paul sees the dangers of religious snobbery, and he does everything he can to nip it in the bud. Specifically, he responds to the church's spiritual one-upmanship with four powerful arguments. First, the source of all gifts is God. When it comes to our spiritual abilities, it is God all the way down. The same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God, Paul writes, grants and activates every gift we might lay claim to. Lest we forget, a gift, by definition, is freely given. It is not earned, it is not deserved. It is not meant to inspire competition, envy, or pride. The spiritual gifts we enjoy are treasures of a vast and generous grace, lavishly given by God, at God's discretion. Second, everyone is special. This democratic notion might inspire a dash-like eye-roll, but it is true. In fact, it is profoundly true. Left to ourselves, Paul argues, we can't even get started as Christians. We can't even make authentic confessions of faith. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, he writes. Meaning, the very fact that we can trust in Jesus, recognize him as Lord, or aspire to follow him at all, is a gift. It is a sign that God's Spirit already dwells richly within us. Can we take this in for a moment? Piety is not an accomplishment. Faith is not something we conjure out of blood, sweat, and tears. It's not that we impress God with our stellar faith and thereby earn more magnificent gifts. It is that faith itself, the very possibility of it, is the magnificent gift, the sure sign of our belovedness. Third, the gifts are not for us. Paul tells the church in Corinth that every gift and manifestation of the Holy Spirit exists for the common good. My ability to teach, preach, serve, love, sing, pray, hope, trust, write, nurture, or heal is not given to me for my personal delectation. It is given solely for the common edification, growth, and blessing of the church. To hoard a spiritual gift is to desecrate it. To practice a lone ranger Christianity is to fundamentally misunderstand and distort the purpose of God's generosity. I receive for the sake of others, which is to say God apportions spiritual gifts based on the needs of the community as a whole, not on my personal needs. My gifts carry you and your gifts carry me. It is God's intention that we rely on each other, that we need each other. If we take this communal responsibility seriously and share what we've been given, we might find deep relief and release in our lives of faith. We don't have to do everything and be everything all by ourselves. I can lean on your wisdom. You can press into my faith. We can serve each other. No single person has to have every gift, because the ultimate recipient of God's generosity is the church, not the individual believer. And lastly, diversity is God's intention. The list of spiritual gifts Paul enumerates in his letter is by no means exhaustive. It merely illustrates the variety, plurality, and multiplicity of God's own being, which makes sense, of course. How can the vastness of our triune God exist in one spiritual gift or ability? How can God, the Logos, the Creator, the Judge, the Shepherd, the Servant, the Lamb, the Counselor, the Bread, the Way, the Truth, and the Life manifest God's multifaceted self in a single spiritual ability? Diversity is at the heart of who God is, and so diversity is the right and natural trademark of God's Church. Or at least it should be. We are not meant to be cookie-cutter Christians. Our goal is not uniformity, it is unity across difference. The fact that our gifts are varied is not an accident. It is a reflection of God's own nature. 
To say that everyone is special in the eyes of our Creator is not to say that no one is. It is to tell the truth about our belovedness. It is to free ourselves of the burdens we carry and impose so cruelly on each other. The envy, the one-upmanship, the spiritual stinginess, the loneliness. It is to reject our culture's worship of self-reliance and lean hard into the fact that we belong to each other. There are many gifts and one spirit. May we bind ourselves to this beautiful and essential truth and find new ways to seek the common good together. For books this week, Dan reviews Amy Frycombe's Wild Woman, a footnote, The Desert and My Quest for an Elusive Saint. Any book by Amy Frycombe is an automatic read for me. Here at JWJ, we have reviewed two of her previous books, Julian of Norwich, A Contemplative Biography, and See Me Naked, Stories of Sexual Exile in American Christianity. Frycombe's five books of nonfiction have covered the territory of American religion, from apocalypticism to saints. She's an award-winning writer and senior editor for the Christian Century, appears frequently on television and radio programs as an expert in American religion, and has lectured widely on subjects like the rapture, purity culture, and lost female figures in Christianity. She has a PhD in literature from Duke University. About 15 years ago, Freikoma happened upon a book in the library that contained a story about St. Mary of Egypt. The story of this elusive saint seemed to unearth Freikoma's most basic longings and the wild places of her heart. Mary, it turns out, was sensual and ascetic, holy and unholy, connected to God but unconnected to all others, illiterate but learned. Wild Woman is a rich mix of multiple genres, personal memoir, historical retrieval, theological inquiry, biblical reflection, and most of all, a pilgrimage to connect one's inner and outer journeys. In August of 2018, Freikom retraced the geographic and spiritual journey of St. Mary. The three parts of her book center on Egypt, Israel, and then Palestine and Jordan. One of the most challenging and interesting aspects of her quest is that we know very little about Mary, and it might be that she didn't even exist. That the 25-page Life of Mary of Egypt, which is included as an appendix, is a myth, legend, or fictional creation by the author Sophronius, the Patriarch of Jerusalem. Freikom thus had to struggle with what she calls the as-if. Mary the Wild Woman exemplifies a deep desire in us to create a connection between her own small life and the greater life. Wherever Mary had been, however unlit the path, God had always been unfolding. That is, to me, says Freikom, one of the key messages of Mary's life. God is everywhere, always unfolding. We can look for signs and wonders because God is always seeking us. This is what it means to be on the path of the wild woman. You risk becoming nothing more than bones in an empty landscape. But you go in that direction because now the thought of not living the truest possible life is unbearable. The call to life is greater than the fear of death. Whatever Mary's inner guide was choosing for her, she would rather have that than any other reward. This is nothing less than the risky business of leaving the old ways behind and taking up something new, something that darts and shimmers and lives. In the famous aphorism of Irenaeus, it is the quest to be fully alive. For films this week, Dan reviews Pope Francis. When Jorge Bergoglio was named the 266th Pope of the Roman Catholic Church on March 13, 2013, many observers were stunned. He was not high on anybody's list of probable candidates. At age 76, he was old. This was a game-changer, said one insider. 
Bergoglio was the first pope to take the name Francis. He's the first pope from the Americas, the first non-European, and first Jesuit priest to be named pope. This one-hour overview of Francis's life aired on July 20th, 2021, as part of PBS's series called In Their Own Words. It is a brisk and very positive take on the pope. It begins with his birth into an Italian immigrant family in Buenos Aires and ends with his visit to Iraq in June of 2021, the first leader of the Catholic Church to visit that country. It considers his positions on women, climate change, gays, the sexual abuse scandals that have rocked the church, and especially his efforts to place the poor and the marginalized at the center of his papacy. Critics will say that this film is superficial and uncritical, or that Francis has not done enough. But there's only so much you can expect in one hour. I especially appreciated the judicious commentary of Austin Ivory, who has written two biographies of Francis. I watched this film from the PBS website. And lastly, for poetry on the second Sunday after the Epiphany, Because We Hunkered Down by Malcolm Gweet. These bleak and freezing seasons may mean grace when they are memory. In time to come when we speak truth, then they will have their place, telling the story of our journey home. Through dark December and stark January with all its disappointments, through the murk and dreariness of frozen February, when even breathing seemed unwelcome work. Because through all of these we held together, because we shunned the impulse to let go, because we hunkered down through our dark weather and trusted to the soil beneath the snow, slowly, slowly turning a cold key, spring will unlock our hearts and set us free. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for January 16th, 2022. I'm Debbie Thomas.